Today's scripture reading is Mark 10, 35 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning and peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. And right now, we are in the midst of a series in which we are looking at five identities of followers of Jesus. We're worshipers, we are witnesses, we are family, we are disciples, and we are servants. And these identities shape everything that we do here at Sojourn Community Church. And we're citrating the order up just a little bit. Uh, Pastor Jamal last week fell ill in the second service, and we're just giving him a chance to recover his strength this week because here at Sojourn, the health of our bodies and souls matters more than getting things in the order we planned. Amen? That's what we want to be in terms of the way we care for one another. Now, if you're like me, when you are in an airplane, you do not pay attention to that, uh, that safety video or that safety presentation. Am I right? We just don't pay attention to it. We don't pay attention to it partly because we've heard it many times before in most instances. But there's another reason I think we don't either because some of it is really absurd. Think about it. If, if, if the ceiling opens up and masks fall out, stay calm. That happens. I'm not going to be calm if masks start falling out of the ceiling. But my favorite one is this. If you're on a flight from Louisville to Nashville, they tell you where to find the flotation devices. Now, what is between Louisville and Nashville that I don't know about, that they know about? Where is there to float between Louisville and Nashville? But a few weeks ago, I had been teaching in the Dominican Republic, and I was listening to it, partly because it was in two languages and partly because I might actually need to know where the flotation devices are coming from Dominican Republic. And and one of the lines that stuck with me that I've heard hundreds of times before, but I'd never really thought about it, is remember that the nearest exit could be behind you. Remember that the nearest exit might be behind you. Why on earth do they need to say that? And I think the reason they need to say that is because we tend to assume that the direction we need to go is ahead of where we are. It's that way on an airplane and it's that way in your life most of the time. 
We assume that what I need most is to get ahead of where I am right now. We assume that in the grocery line, we assume that about our grades, our jobs, our relationships. If only I can get to that point that's up there in front of me, then everything will be great. Or if only I can get rid of that obstacle or that person that is in front of me, everything is going to be great. We think that the place we need to go is always in front of us and ahead of us. But what if the place where we most need to go is not ahead of us, but behind us? And that's what Jesus is saying in this text. That's what he's declaring to his disciples in this text is that the direction that will lead to your satisfaction and joy is not clawing your way to the front of the line. The direction to turn is not in front of you, but behind you, not at the front of the line, but the back of the line in the identity of a servant, a servant. That's what we see in this text. Now remember in this text, Jesus is on a journey right now to his death. Jesus is walking the green mile that will end in his execution. And there are three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus, those three times, predicts his death and his return from the dead. And hereafter, immediately after the third prediction of Jesus's death and resurrection, James and John come to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, this is like when your child comes to you and says, daddy, will you do something for me? Never answer yes. Never say yes when your child comes to you and saying that because you will end up buying ponies and puppies and trips to Disney World that you never planned because children are evil and they will sinners and they will try to get from you everything they can because that's who they are. Now, Jesus knows better than to give in to this. Jesus knows his disciples are devious, just like I know my daughters are devious. And so he does not say yes. He says, what is it that you want? What do you want, guys? And they respond, you know, we hate to ask you about this, Jesus. And it's just a little thing, but, but we'd really like to sit on your right and on your left when you are in your kingdom glory. Now, that's a metaphor in their world. You've got to remember that that person, those persons who sat at the right in particular, but the right and the left of a king were those who enacted the king's judgments and served as the king's successors. And Jesus has predicted his death. What I think is going on here is that even though he's predicted his resurrection, they're not getting that but they're believing that he may die bringing his kingdom and they are wanting to be the successors to Jesus. Now imagine for just a moment, you're on that airline flight that you ignored the flight safety briefing and you get that seat two rows back from first class. It's the worst because you can see all the good stuff happening up in first class, the comfort that they have, the better snacks that they have, and you can see that, but you can't have it. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you start seeing a commotion up in first class. And you're watching that commotion. They call for a doctor and suddenly they pull a guy out. They're, they're doing chest compressions. And while all this chaos is going on, you reach up and you hit the flight attendant button. And when it gets there, you say something to the effect of, um, if that guy dies, can I have his seat? Now, the people around you, half of them are going to be upset because what you asked was inappropriate. Half of them are going to be upset because you asked first. <laughs> and that's exactly, though, what the disciples are doing right here. 
That's exactly what they're doing. If you die, can we get your seat? They want to make sure if he's bumped off, they get bumped up. They're lobbying for lordship. They want to reign as sovereigns. And Jesus says to them, you don't even understand what you're asking. You don't get it, guys. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you endure the baptism that I am going to endure? Now, both of these, the cup and baptism in the Old Testament, are symbols of suffering and judgment. We see in Isaiah chapter 51, it speaks of the cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's fury. We have an image in Isaiah chapter 43 that God will preserve his people through the waters of judgment. So this, and this Jesus is saying, you're going to suffer if you follow me. You're going to suffer. It's a reminder both of their, their suffering that may yet come, and it's a reminder that Jesus is going to suffer in our place upon the cross, endure God's judgment. But the disciples, they don't get it. Sure, cup and baptism, we are your cup and baptism people. We are able to do cup and baptism. We don't know what you're talking about, but we can do cup and baptism. That's us. That's us. And Jesus in this, though, what he is trying to do is to call them not to try to reign as sovereigns, but to be people who are prepared to suffer. People who are prepared to suffer in this. And then he says to them, it's, it's not mine to give, actually. It's for those, notice the plural, to whom it has been, or for whom it has been prepared. That's important. Because do you know who it's been prepared for? Not just one or two people, but for every person who is in Christ, that we will reign with him, that we will share in his glory. He's saying, you're asking for something for the two of you that has been prepared for all who follow me. And then it says that the other disciples are indignant or angry Half of them because the request was inappropriate and half of them because James and John asked first, just like on the airplane. So Jesus calls the disciples together. And here's what Jesus has to say when he calls them together in verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. You know what he's saying there? All those Roman emperors and Roman governors that you despise, you are acting just like them. You're acting just like them. You're trying to use power over others to reign as sovereigns. And you're trying to do it in my name. And let's be honest, how often do we see this in the church and in the world? of people who claim the name of Christ abusing power just like those who reject Christ. We are, I believe, in our world and in our churches, we are in the midst of a reckoning in this, and it is a reckoning that is far from over. And it is a judgment of God upon those using power in ways that abuse and that exploit and we can easily look outward at others, but we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at ourselves in this. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, as he's thinking about these people who are, that they're trying to live under the authority of him, but yet they want to use power to press others down, to be ahead, to be sovereigns. And Jesus says, it must not be so among you. Now, we can't change Christianity as a whole right here. We can't even change evangelicalism as a whole. Believe me, if I could, there'd be a lot of things different, okay? We can't. But here's what we can do. We can echo Jesus and say, it will not be so here at Sojourn. We can do that. We can do that. We can declare that we will choose to cultivate a culture where we listen to the voices of abused and exploited, where we do not sweep things under rugs, where we confront when power is misused. And so Jesus, he says, it will not be so among you. And that's what I want us to say. It will not be so among us. We will cultivate a different kind of culture than the world around us or even churches. We will do, have a culture that values the vulnerable. And Jesus drives home his point by saying, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. And in this, he's not only calling them to suffering, he is calling them to servanthood. And whether in small ways or scandalous ways, all of us face the same temptation as James and John. To seek what we want at the expense of others, to set ourselves up as sovereigns. And the remedy that Jesus offers is that the place you need to aim for is not ahead of you, but behind you in a servant and a slave. Now, this metaphor of slavery, it's hard for us in the United States because of the fact that we have this awful history of racially based chattel slavery in which people were stolen and enslaved for profit and treated as less than human beings. I don't like what Jesus says here. I don't like this metaphor. It gets under my skin. I don't like it. And yes, it's important to understand that the type of slavery we've had in our history wasn't identical to what they had in the Roman Empire, which could often be temporary slavery. It could often, it was not racially based at all. And in fact, there's even a different word in the New Testament for the type of slavery that we've experienced in our country when people are stolen and sold for profit. And Paul in 1 Timothy chapter one lists that with sins to make it clear that this is condemned by God. And yet even with that, even with that, Slavery was not a desirable thing, even in their culture. Nobody said, I want to grow up and be a slave. It was still people owning people who are created in God's image. And yet Jesus says, you are to be servants and slaves of one another. And that would be utterly unbearable apart from what Jesus says in verse 45. Look at verse 45. What he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear what he's saying? That in Christ, the sovereign king becomes a servant. The Lord and the master dies the death of a slave because death on a cross was associated with two types of people, revolutionaries or slaves. And by him hanging from the tree, he is taking the place. He is, he is expressing the, the, this reality that he is dying as a slave in a slave's place. And this death, it says, is a ransom 
is a ransom. Do you see what he's saying there? That by his death, he will ransom and set free his people. So the king becomes a slave to set us free, but then he sets us free to serve. Do you see the paradox and the beauty of this? And yet it's the reality. The king becomes a slave to set us free and he sets us free to serve. What does that mean? It means we are fellow servants together of God in Christ. We have no right to use others, no right to tear down others, no right to press down others, no right to behave as sovereigns instead of servants. When we serve one another in our church, we are to be living this out. But then what does it look like practically? Well, Mark gives us an example by putting an example right after this of somebody who lives as a servant. And it is this unlikely individual named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus has nothing to offer, nothing to offer whatsoever. He is a beggar. He is blind. He cannot see. He cannot work. And Jesus is passing through the city of Jericho. And when Jesus passes through, Bartimaeus begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him said, be quiet, be quiet. Jesus doesn't want to deal with anybody like you. But instead, look at what Jesus does in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. And he threw aside his cloak, jumped up and came to Jesus. Let's pause for a moment. What it seems like it's describing here is that in their culture, the way that somebody would beg would be to spread out a cloak in front of them. And they spread out the cloak in front of them so that people could throw things in it as they went by, throw coins in. So when it says here, Bartimaeus throws aside his cloak, he is throwing aside all that he has just to get to Jesus. He's throwing aside everything to get to Jesus. He has nothing. And notice at this point, he's still blind. He has nothing. And yet he is blind. He has nothing to offer. You don't say, have mercy on me if you have something to offer. And Bartimaeus is a servant. And the characteristics of a servant is that your identity is found in your master. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And he identifies himself with Jesus. A servant, a slave was vulnerable. And he throws everything aside and becomes vulnerable. And a servant is dependent on what the master provides. And so he goes to Jesus, utterly dependent, utterly vulnerable with nothing. And Jesus, in verse 51, he asks him exactly what he had asked his disciples earlier. What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, teacher, the blind man said to him, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the way. He started out beside the way and now he is on the way with Jesus. 
Jesus asked, what do you want to his disciples, James and John? And they had said, we want sovereignty. And he asked Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus says, I just want to see. That's all I want. I just want to see. And he gets all that he asks. And as soon as he gets it, the moment that he gets it, everything that he asks, just to be able to see, he follows Jesus. He becomes a servant. He becomes a servant who follows. Now, Bartimaeus doesn't know what comes next. Bartimaeus doesn't know that the king he follows will be greeted as a king on this Sunday, but will hang from a tree like a slave on Friday. He doesn't know that Jesus will be the next Sunday revealed as the risen Lord. He doesn't know that through this death and resurrection, Jesus will be revealed as the king and the servant. He doesn't know that because of the death of Jesus, the most we can suffer for Jesus has already been, that it's been suffered by him. And the worst that can be said about us has already been said about him. And the most we can ever lose has already been lost in his death and will be regained in his resurrection. Bartimaeus doesn't know that, but he follows. He follows Jesus. He is satisfied with being a servant, even as James and John have demanded sovereignty. And here's the truth, if we're honest about it. We are James and John far more often than we are Bartimaeus. We so often choose sovereignty and long for sovereignty, to be in control, to get ahead, instead of resting with our identity and our master, vulnerable and dependent upon him. So what does this do for our lives? What does this mean for us practically in the way we love and live with one another here in our church? Number one, because I am a servant, my identity is no longer my own. My identity is not my own. You are a slave of Christ and your identity no longer belongs to you. He has set you free to find your identity in him, not in your job, your friends, your spouse, your house, your children. And how is it that we know what we're finding our identity in? Well, ask yourself this question. What is it that I look at and I say, if I didn't have that, I just couldn't go on. Behold, that's where your identity is. If I didn't have that, I just couldn't go on. There is where you're finding your identity. There's so many things that compete for our identity. Sometimes we even try to find our identity in what we do in church. And you may serve in children's ministry or welcome ministry or mercy ministry. And I hope that you do. I want you to sign up and I want you to seek to serve in those areas. But hear this. These opportunities are not your identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, your identity is in Christ. And the places you serve in church are simply the context where you live out that identity. And that sets you free. You don't need to find your identity in your performance and how well you do, but simply in faithfulness to Christ who has everything that God demands from us has already been delivered for us in Christ. You can rest in that. Second, because I'm a servant of Christ, I no longer need to hide my weakness. 
Remember, to be a slave was to be vulnerable. And if we are slaves of Christ, we can admit our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. And I don't say that in the sense of excusing our sin, where we simply say, I'm just that way, I'm weak in that area. I mean being honest about our struggles with sin so that we may be transformed. But I don't even mean just being honest about our struggles, but being honest about our physical and our emotional weaknesses. Being honest when we're just tired or broken. Being honest with ourselves and with one another when we're not well. You see that value in us right now. Last week, Jamal fell ill in the second service, and, and I want you to understand, I've been in ministry 25, 26 years, and there's so many churches I have served in that there would have been a scramble to make sure that we just keep everything going and that make sure nothing ends up being slowing down or anything, and make sure and push, push your pastor to be back in the pulpit next Sunday so we just keep going. Served in places like that because the show must go on. But we want to be a place where there is no show. There's only Jesus. That's what we want. There is no show. There is only Jesus. We want to be a place where we are not striving to produce a perfect show, but striving to serve a perfect Savior. And so what we can do is we can acknowledge when we're weak, and we can pray about it, and we can seek to love one another in it. So important to me. So 16 years ago, this month, actually, I was in the back corner of a family life center our church had just built, the church I was serving at that time, curled up on a cold concrete floor. And I was curled up there because we were at the end of a youth revival, and I had literally gone four months and never taken a moment off from working in the church. And I was building a massive youth ministry but killing my own soul. And we're at the end of a youth revival, the last night of it. And I said, I have to get back up in front one more time and act like everything's fine. And so I made myself get up in front of everybody, perform it all one more time. But then that week, I went to the personnel committee of the church and I said, I'm done, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And they put me in a, in a different role where I had some space for my soul. And during those months in that role of me trying just to rebuild, I, I ran across um, different authors that I'd never really run across before that God brought them to my path. It's not even authors I 100% agree with, but I don't even 100% agree with me sometimes. <laughs> but one of them was Henry Nguyen. And, and from Henry Nguyen and his writings, I, I saw grace and space for my soul an identity in Christ as a leader that I'd never seen before. And one of the statements from Henry Nguyen that sticks with me is the way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. I don't have to claw always to get forward and ahead. I don't have to choose that path can choose the path of resting in Christ, resting in him. Lastly, because I am a servant of Christ, I am dependent in every moment on the master 
who became a servant for me. See, the, the identity of being a servant is not a goal that you achieve through what you do. It is a gift that you receive by being by joined with Jesus who gave himself for you. And truly to be a servant of Christ is to embrace that dependence on him. To say, I, I need you. I need you, Jesus. And to admit that. And the truth is that all of us long for sovereignty at some point. We are so good at acting as if we are always strong and we are not needy and are not broken and as if there are never times that we have sadness that we just can't seem to shake. Embrace your dependence and your need for Jesus. Need to be a place where we can say we need Jesus and we need the church and the doctors and the counselors that he's working through to heal my soul. We need to be able to say that. And that's part of what we declare when we become members of, of a church. That I need Jesus and I need one another. You can't follow Jesus alone any more than you can get married alone. We need one another to be able to follow Jesus and we need to serve one another and look for opportunities to serve one another. That's what we declare being part of the body of Christ. I want to give you a, a habit, a liturgy, we might say, that I'm not pretending that this liturgy will fix the issues in your life. I can tell you it will point you to the one who can fix them. And it's the words of Bartimaeus. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. When there are those times that you want sovereignty, you want to push others aside, or you simply want to stand up as if you're strong and have it all together when you're not, that you simply repeat these words. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You don't cry out for mercy if you have something to offer on your own. You only cry out for mercy if you have nothing left to offer. Say that with me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You are a servant if you're in Christ. And the place to look for your identity is not in what you see in front of you or in what you do. It's behind you. In the place of servanthood. But remember that there has already been one who has gone before you who is the perfect servant. And when we turn to our need to be a servant, there he is waiting for us. The servant, the slave, who, was ran who ransomed us and set us free that we may serve him. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray.